0: No matter the decade or century, some books appear just as relevant to modern ideas and issues as they did in their own time. While these works often draw on universal themes, they also leave space for contemporary readings. One such text has been so thoroughly woven into the fabric of Western culture that its influence can be seen in movies, TV shows, books, and even economic frameworks. Daniel Defoe's 1719 novel, Robinson Crusoe, has inspired some of history's greatest thinkers and continues to shape how we think about Western culture.
1: Robinson Crusoe is like a sponge for readings. And that has to do with, I think, the kind of core allegory, that's, th- which is the island. It's just such a capacious set piece for thinking. And it's really become, you know, the, the idea of the man alone on the island, a core myth about Western capitalism and civilization. I am Stephanie de Goyer. Currently, I'm um, a Frederick Burkhart fellow at UCLA.
0: Robinson Crusoe provides readers with a close look at not only the isolated human on an individual level, but also humanity on the international level through its depictions of global trade and economics.
1: Because everybody's been interested in the island, what happens to Robinson Crusoe on the island and how he builds and fortifies a life for himself. But all of this irrelevant detail about his ventures in Brazil and in Africa and Morocco, that's what fascinates me. It's about how somebody in the late or mid-17th century could be traveling the world and joining the companies of foreign empires um, and making uh, quite a substantial fortune for himself outside of England.
0: Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Stephanie DeGoyer to discuss Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe. Would you mind giving us a summary of the story for people who don't know what happens in this book.
1: The book sort of begins with Robinson Crusoe narrating his life and history um, from the perspective of who his family is. He mentions that he has this calling to go to sea um, that is very much against the wishes of his parents who don't want him to go. Um, and he defies them and he arranges with a captain he meets to take his maiden voyage. And on that first voyage, uh, he meets a disastrous storm and shipwreck. And he ends up back in England and a sea captain who he meets says, well, you should take that as a sign that you should never go to sea again. And of course, Robinson goes to sea again. And on this um, particular voyage, he's captured and enslaved in Morocco for um, I think two years And he engineers an an escape by uh, convincing his master to outfit a fishing boat for a long voyage. And then when they're on the voyage, Robinson sort of turns a gun on the master and boots him off the ship and sets sail where he ends up meeting a Portuguese captain who takes him to Brazil. And then in Brazil, he discovers the lucrative slave plantations. And he wants to be one of these planters as well. And so, he um, sets up a very lucrative plantation for himself and he's quite rich at this moment. But of course, the calling comes back and he decides that he's going to, in the name of Portugal, go on a slaving expedition. And it's on his way to Africa to procure more slaves, African slaves, that he meets the disastrous Shipwreck that ultimately brings him to the island. But then what you have is a sort of diaristic account of Robinson Crusoe taking as much as he can from the shipwreck, uh, fame most importantly, some rifles, um, some cheese, a little bit of drink, and um, other items and sundry. And then he, you have a very elaborate and to my students, tedious accounting of how he, Domesticates goats, builds himself a fortification, you know. Um, and then eventually he discovers a footprint on the sand, which is horrifying to him because it indicates, of course, that uh, there's other people on the island. And this is when he discovers that cannibals have been coming to the island. And one of the cannibals um, that comes to the island as an enslaved cannibal is a person he names Friday. And he ultimately rescues Friday and becomes his side man. He teaches him Christianity, the English language. And eventually they get off the island and um, Crusoe ends up back in England, not before he goes to Brazil and finds that in his absence, that plantation has been invested, the profits of it. By the Portuguese king, and is way more profitable when he left, so all those years on the island when he was uh, making clothes and umbrellas um and and bread and pots, um, his plantation was being invested, and um he is a very wealthy man by the end of the novel
0: and what was it like when this book came out? Um what was the public reaction? Um, And why do you think people responded to it in in such a powerful way?
1: Many people, when it first came out, because Defoe's name wasn't on the title page, many people were led to believe by the kind of prefatory materials that attended the novel, that it was a true story. Of course, it's a bit preposterous because the plot has so many romantic elements in it. But people maybe would have read it um, out of a desire for the travel narrative motif um, it his first critic Charles Gildon was extremely rough on the narrative. He excoriated it for um, being very bad writing. I mean it is it's written very hastily and um, for its religious inconsistencies, which is something I'm interested in as well. Um, uh, Crusoe is Protestant, but then conveniently becomes a Papist in Brazil to buy a plantation, and then he switches back again a few times. So the, the the there there was an immediate reaction, but we could say I think by 1900 that there's 200 editions of the novel in English. So it was read, it was read widely by a lot of people. Um, and it wouldn't have been considered high literature either, which is important. This is a popular genre that lots of people would have been reading.
0: Um, let's let's go into Defoe's life and how he came to write such a popular novel.
1: Um, Defoe's life is almost, if not more, fantastical and fascinating than Crusoe's. Um, he's born in... 1660. Um, he's the third child, um, much like Crusoe, of a merchant who's very successful, um, but not quite gentry, obviously. Defoe is actually born named Foe. That's his last name. But he later adds the "de" as a kind of stylization that would make him sound um, more gentlemanlike. But he is for the beginning um, portion of his life, a merchant. He trades in hosiery and wine and he owns a tile factory at some point. He um, is jailed quite frequently for debts. Um, he becomes a political writer for most of his life. Very famously wrote uh, um, a satire called The Shortest Wave with the dissenters because he himself was a non-conforming Protestant that lands him in jail, and then on the pillory, which was a very awful form of punishment, where you're put in stocks in the public, and and people can throw things at you. But Defoe is actually bizarrely admired, and people famously threw flowers at him when he was on the pillory. Then he becomes a spy for Queen Anne, um, and he s- is sent to Scotland to sort of foment the union, which would ultimately become the um, United Kingdom. So, Defoe was not a novelist or even an imaginary writer for most of his life. It's actually quite late in life that he decides to write a novel. And of course, they weren't called novels at the time. And some people speculate that he needed money and he had been reading some castaway stories about um, uh, a man named Alexander Selkirk who had been castaway on a Pacific Island. And he had read a number of sources and then decided to try his hand at writing a narrative that he tried to pass off as real. And it was wildly successful. And, and it produced money. And just about everything that Defoe ever did in his life was either to try and make money as a merchant or to um, uh, to, uh, to be a part of political life. And so uh, Robinson Crusoe, in some ways, is a great thing for him, a venture for him to do because it satisfies his desire to write, but it doesn't land him in the kind of trouble that his political writing had landed in it. And so he goes on very quick succession to write a number of books, all amazing, Maul Flanders, Roxanna, um, and so forth.
0: Yeah, to me, its um, it's, you know, what's unusual about Defoe is he's, you know something you would almost never see today—a businessman and a world-famous writer. I mean, the way he combined those two is extraordinary.
1: If you read um, a biography of his life, the energy of his life—and this isn't a time where people could die quite quickly—and most children didn't live—and being forty was ancient. Um, the energy and just the sheer amounts of travel he did, um, and 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 being, you know, being in debtor's prison or um, the old Bailey was awful and he did those kinds of stints as well so
0: yeah he um, I mean he he lived on a knife edge didn't he I mean mm -hmm. constantly running from debtor you know debtor punishment but he didn't seem to learn I, I mean he really had some kind of pull towards adventure and danger and risk
1: Exactly. He also had a pull towards trade, but he was it's hard to say this, but he wasn't very good at it. I mean, his tile factory he had good instincts, you could say, but he was bad at managing business. And over and over he runs over his accounts, has to borrow money from his brother in law. Um, you know, but he strikes out again. So in some ways turning to the novel was, was a kind of venture that combined both of his talents, which were writing and um, business Um, and a little bit of a safer one because he's not going to um, have the queen become angry at him and be tried for sedition.
0: Although Defoe did make some money from his writings, he wasn't able to hold on to any of it for very long and was often in debt. In 1731, he died while hiding from his creditors to avoid going back to debtor's prison so let's go into some of the themes of the text um you know I'm, i'm curious about both what what was defoe maybe trying to say through the text but also what does the text itself say which may be you know different ways it's been read over time
1: we don't really know what defoe wanted to say with the text but there have been generations of readings of it um there's rousseau's there is um, Marx's, there is um, later there's Coleridge's, there's there's Charles Gildon, And then in the 50s, 1950s, you get English literary criticisms, um, most famous reading, which is through Ian Watt, who was um, a very seminal literary critic who focuses on the individualism of the novel. But at each one of these readings has at some point become... Critiqued itself. So we never really get at a pure meaning of the text. But then you have by um, 1948 or so, the framers of the Declaration of Rights, um, Universal Human Rights, are looking at the core myth of what does man need. Uh, to be successful? What kind of rights does he need? And they're invoking Crusoe. So it's, power, it's been a powerful set piece for a lot of different arguments. Whether, um, and some are better than others. I would say some have more evidence, um, but what, what Defoe is trying to do um, is still an open question. I think he was definitely reading a lot of sources about castaways. They can say a lot of things in, in such a simple conceit. It's interesting.
0: Let's go into what, what the text, um, a way of reading the text, which is about the relationship between, you know, a human and society and nature. What does isolation do to Robinson Crusoe, and what are the ideas that are contained in that depiction?
1: The earliest, I mean, I think if we think about this today from our modern lens, and if you think of putting a person. On an island for thirty-six years without with limited resources, I think we would we would conceptualize something like *Lord of the Flies*, um, something that would quickly turn uh, catastrophic. Um, but interestingly, the first good reading I think of the solitariness of the individual is Rousseau's, who recommends *Robinson Crusoe* as the book, indeed the only book. Um, that's necessary for a natural education. Rousseau is very interested in what we know and who we are before civil society corrupts us.
0: Jean-Jacques Rousseau was an 18th century Swiss philosopher living in France. He was interested in human nature outside the influence of civil society. Rousseau believed that people are born good, but over time are corrupted by society.
1: So someone like Rousseau would, would look at, did look at, Crusoe is a book about the solitary individual and, and what one is capable of outside of the frameworks of civil society, the myth of the state of nature. Um, but of course, um, Rousseau didn't really pick up on the theme of labor and that would really become something that would occupy other people, rational actor economics. What, what, what would you do to produce for yourself? Absent of a larger social structure, right? Um, you you would make o- you would make only enough that you need. You would um, make decisions based on the imminence of their use, as opposed to um, the capital gains of selling them and such. So then the book becomes interesting on that score too, thinking about um, what we need and how we would make it and 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 the rest. So. Those are the kinds of things that become interesting um, for the scope of individualism, as well for economics, at least.
0: Why Why have economists been so interested in in this book? Um, what does it say about the natural economy, and and what does it say about trade?
1: I think it's invoked very often today in mainstream economics as an example of the, the so-called homo economicus right an example of systems building or the rational actor economic behavior right this is essentially what crusoe demonstrates so it's it's been a good example um, of economic behavior and rational acting it's not a great example if you You look at the core of the novel, which is the island of trade, because for so much of the novel, Crusoe is really only dealing with himself. And trade is what happens in the world outside of the novel, the pieces that bookend it, the stuff, um, the global slave trade. And so, one of the criticisms of a reading like a famous reading like Crusoe's Irrational um, Economics is that it really isn't interested in the wider set piece of the novel, which is um, the global slave trade in the intra-imperial global slave trade too, right? You have all of these empires trading with each other in some ways, the traffic of human beings that all gets sort of subtended and the novel itself becomes a sort of thinking example of how you would make things and how you would create an economy for yourself. Later, when people do come to the island, Crusoe has to sort of think about his stockpiles differently. But essentially, um, he is somebody whose labor hasn't been alienated from himself on the island. And that's been what's interesting.
0: Could you tell us a little bit more about the context um, of global commerce and and you know imperial trade that's happening? I mean, wh- what was going on in the wider world in which the, the novel is set?
1: In the 1690s, you have a financial revolution in England, and this is not the same thing as the industrial revolution that you would get in the 19th century, right? The the, the stuff of Dickens and sooty London and um, huge factories and large overseas colonies um, that are benefiting England. This is the sort of earlier version. Of this, when trade is being enhanced, England's empire is not as strong as it would become. At the time, um, I don't have the numbers before me, but I I think you know Portugal is near the top of um, slave trading empires, and so is France, and so England is is um, hasn't invested as heavily. Of course, it has the Americas, um, but it hasn't hasn't its height at an empire isn't there yet. And so you have this financial revolution that's based on speculation, credit, trade, overseas trade. Um, And it's really the advent to some historians of what we today would call globalization. The idea that you can be sitting in your London office making money all around the world through trade. Um, And that's definitely something that Daniel Defoe, like John Locke, were interested in. In in other words, they weren't interested in colonization um, in the Spanish sense of taking over um, and punishing. They were really interested in new markets. New markets on the one hand for consumption in England and new markets elsewhere for the consumption of other goods. So this is this is the fi- the, the the dawn of the financial revolution, that's set that's setting up this book, but not importantly the industrial revolution, which is why I think some of the readings of empire and slavery have to be a little careful about the time periods that they're thinking through when they read the novel.
0: This book is often, or at least sometimes, linked to colonialism. And the encounters have, you know, many of the tropes that we relate to kind of colonial logic in terms of Western-educated person uh, enlightening the the local savages. Um, is is this a fair reading of the book? And and if not, what what's a more accurate reading of its relationship to colonialism?
1: The root of the word colonization, part of its definition, is means attachment to the parent state. So a colony is an offshoot of a nation that is really set up um, as as a kind of vessel that will then send money back to the colony. Here, as I mentioned, um, Crusoe's relationship to England is really unclear. Um, he's First of all, he's marooned. He's also become a papist in Brazil. And so on. on the kind of technical level, whether he's Colonizing in the name of England is unclear. Um, but then there's more, uh, other, there's other aspects to this in which Crusoe never thinks of himself as a colonizer. In fact, he only says at one point in the novel that um, he thinks of the island as being his by inheritance, which is um, sort of tapping into sort of more of the property based assumptions of England than. Um, direct brute colonization. And then of course, Defoe himself was no advocate of um, colonization. He was more of a proponent of trade, creating new markets to trade with. So, um, But nonetheless, you still have a novel that's about a European who shows up on an island and the first more indigenous persons he meets, of course, they're not from the island, but they're from a nearby nation. Um, he sees himself as superior to them, so you you can definitely see why people like Edward Said could see the um, could could see the novel as an allegory of European colonization. It's just not, to my mind, um, clearly an example of English colonization, which is how people like James Joyce and Said, who I just mentioned read the novel. They see it as a kind of allegory of England's dominance on um, other nations. And I, that's not clear to me at all, just because Crusoe is too much of an opportunist. At the end of the novel, some English mutineers show up, some Spaniards show up, and of course, Friday's families show up. and. Crusoe has no partiality for the English at all. In fact, he seems to favor the Spaniards and when he leaves the island, gives it to them um, for safekeeping. So he he doesn't seem to have the setup of a colonizer in those senses. But nonetheless, it's still very, very much uh, a depiction of racial hierarchies, um, racism, and slavery.
0: When Defoe set out to write Robinson Crusoe, He was well aware of the literary market in England. Books and newspaper articles about adventure and survival were very popular. There was also a new class of readers in England at the time, the middle class. Robinson Crusoe was written for the middle class, starring a middle class hero. For these reasons, Robinson Crusoe has often been referred to as the first modern novel.
1: Scholars, of course, complicate this because we know that prose narratives have existed since ancient Greece. And in that manner, um, we can't celebrate Robinson Crusoe for doing something that had been done before. And the word novel itself isn't coined or really used until the 19th century. So in that in that sense, the kind of idea itself is anachronistic. But Crusoe is special um, for a variety of reasons that scholars have noted. Um, it is a prose narrative. And on that score, it's not the first But it really focuses on the empirical depiction of the individual. Importantly, an individual who has no high social standing, he is not a king, he's not of the upper classes, he is a merchant, he is um, a middle class aspiring merchant. And he is the subject of this book. So that makes it quite new on on that. the idea that a, a book could describe an average everyday person um, and that the reader, when reading the book, could feel that they themselves could be in this position.
0: At the time, the protagonists in stories and plays would typically be from the upper classes of society. Lower class members usually only served as comic relief, hardly ever the hero.
1: But the idea that a merchant would be the centerpiece of a spiritual adventure autobiography is something that we can only really see um, towards the end of the 17th century into the 18th century with the commercial um, and financial revolution and the shift from a feudal society to um, new forms of production and readership. So uh, it's very much a, a novel of its time that emerges out of those conditions and narrates new forms of responding to them at the same time.
0: How does this spread to different readers and different audiences and, and translations and adaptations?
1: There is such a, a secondary field here that has some scholars have taken on full time of tracking what became called in the 19th century, Robinson ads, which is a whole genre of spin-offs of the novel. By the 19th century, as I mentioned, there had there was 200 editions of this in English, not to mention all of the translations that um, persist. The novel was um, at this point also; it had been edited into a children's format and sort of focusing on the uh, island adventures, and so it becomes um, and it becomes illustrated which is really helpful for its advance. But it's so interesting. It just spawns this runaway genre of um, female Robinson Crusoe's. Across the 19th century, there's German female Robinson Crusoe. There's an American female Robinson Crusoe. Um, into the 20th century, of course, you have castaway narratives, Lord of the Flies. You have so many spinoffs. It, you know, there's Wikipedia pages devoted to them. And I think part of it has to do with the castaway setting about how that can become an allegory for so many things. Um, but it's, it's, it's definitely one of the most widely successful English books ever. Um, and I don't think that's an exaggeration to say that. And even if today we don't read the original, although I think people should if they can, we certainly consume it in all kinds of all other forms, whether it's um, through the uh, Survivor television show, or films, or, or even um, even kind of science fiction depictions of, of, of you know, man left alone to sort of devise for himself. All of that, I think, um, is very much responding to the tradition of the Robinson ad genre.
0: From its initial publication, Robinson Crusoe has had a prominent place in popular literature, where it has remained for over three hundred years. It has inspired countless adaptations, ranging from fan fiction and television series to plays and movies. It has inspired some of Western culture's greatest thinkers, and is still being read and taught around the world today.
1: So I very, very much think it's never really left. Um, it's never really left contemporary culture, and it has traveled the world in. All kinds of formats, editions with illustrations, excisions, um, spin-offs, piracies, everything, and that is pretty much the mark of a very successful book. And not to mention, has been read by some of the more seminal intellectuals um, in in our time, but also certainly. In the 19th century, and that on its own, to have Marx writing about you, to have Coleridge making a mention of your book in his famous poem "The Rime of Ancient Mariner," to have Rousseau recommending your book—I mean, those are pretty powerful <laughs> endorsements.
0: So you know, imagine you're at a cocktail party. Um, imagine um, someone comes up to you and and just asks you straight up. How did Robinson Crusoe change the world? What's your answer?
1: It gave us a story that was so powerful, and stories can be so much more powerful than theories. That made that, you know, made the idea of what what are humans capable of on their own, what is the value of their labor. It it, it got us to think about those. It's like a, a, a thought experiment. That goes way farther than Hobbes or Locke or Rousseau in its thinking. It actually fleshes out the idea of the state of nature, so to speak, in um, and, and really powerful ways. And it doesn't surprise me, it didn't surprise me to learn that the framers of the um, Universal Declaration of Human Rights would have been thinking about Robinson Crusoe as a kind of character study for what what a person needs absent of society, absenting society. So I think it created a powerful idea. Um, and, and that idea has, of course, been shaped and shifted by other people, but um, the idea very much has run away from the author himself and become something that we can think about for a variety of means. So I think that's its power.
0: Rit Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Pecci. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Rit Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.